When people think of democracy, they tend to think about voting or elections. And while it's true that those are key parts of our democracy, they are just that, parts. Democracy is so much more than just voting and elections. It affects our way of life. It determines who represents us, who speaks for us, what policies we pass, and what policies we don't. But what else is democracy? What are the other ingredients that are needed for it to work? I'm your host, Alexander Leal, and welcome to Democracy Is, a podcast presented by California Common Cause, designed to think about all the ingredients of a healthy, inclusive democracy that we don't typically think about. Each episode, we are going to tackle a democracy issue and host a special guest who will guide us into a deeper conversation of how it affects all of us and our communities. This week, we'll be chatting with Kathy Fung on the topic of redistricting reform. On November 3rd, 2020, about 17.8 million Californians cast their ballot in the presidential election. They also voted for their state assembly members, county supervisors, and school board members. Voters may know that who you can vote for depends on which district you reside in. What they may not realize is that in the upcoming election, the district they vote in for the June primary might look radically different than what it looked like in 2020. Why? Who will represent them depends on more than just their ballot, but also on the census and redistricting. Now, you may remember filling out a form or even answering your door to find a census worker announcing that they were there to record your household. Maybe your partner or roommate filled it out for the whole house. And yes, it's true that the census is designed to count the members of your household and ultimately everyone in the nation. But its importance goes way beyond that. The census will have a direct impact on your daily life because of something called redistricting. Now, what does all of this have to do with you? Well, the census serves a critically important democratic purpose. It decides how many representatives are given to each state. And the process of the census gives us an inside look into who makes up our country. Redistricting then draws the districts in which those representatives will serve. The census and redistricting can also affect local issues by determining which communities get certain amounts of funding or resources. If you care about the environment, public education, equity, or a number of other social and civic issues, then you need to know about redistricting. It's a necessary process that has taken place every 10 years since the beginning of our country. It's the story of our growth and the history of our communities. Unfortunately, when redistricting is left in less than genuine hands, it can also lead to a manipulation in district lines, which could potentially break up your community into new districts with different representatives. It could even threaten to dilute your community's vote and therefore its power in future elections. One of the greatest threats to the redistricting process actually began during the initial debates over how congressional districts should be drawn. With every democratic process comes a person who will try and manipulate that process. Enter Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry. The original American gerrymander was the most infamous example of politicians manipulating redistricting to their own gain. The gerrymander, a tactic used to manipulate maps for political advantage, has taken on a life of mythical proportions. As Massachusetts governor, Elbridge Gerry had the final decision on the maps, and in March of 1812, he and his political colleagues had one goal, to elect as many members of his party as possible. 
to do so, he approved a map that would break up an opposition stronghold in the heart of his state, Massachusetts. As a result, a new district was born with a peculiar shape that took up a life of its own. The shape of this peculiar district featured in the Boston area snakes up the side of several districts and slices its way through Essex County, creating the perfect opportunity for a cartoonist at the Boston Gazette to add wings, a beak, and draw a new species of monster in the shape of a salamander. A reporter for the Salem Gazette reprinted the political cartoon and thus the gerrymander was born. A fun fact, originally the word was pronounced gerrymander, but over time has transformed itself into gerrymander. Although there is evidence of gerrymandering, even back in England, what made the map that Governor Gary approved so notorious was how blatant his intentions were. The slicing of districts for political gain was so clear, it was almost comical. While the gerrymander took up a life of its own in the newspapers, Governor Gary accomplished his goal to gain as many seats as possible for his party. They managed to elect three allies in Essex County, which in the last election had chosen five members of the opposing party. As a result, Governor Gary's party held over 70% of the state Senate seats, despite only receiving 49% of the votes. This move proved to be very lucrative to Governor Elbridge Gary. He went on to become the vice president under James Madison. Since that original gerrymander, some politicians have been tempted by the same fruit that Governor Elbridge Gary was, hoping that by moving lines, they too could potentially gain seats and power for their party. It has been used as a tool to empower their political allies and weaken the presence of opposing political parties or communities of color, often at the expense of you and me. Redistricting is a complex process with so many layers, and oftentimes it feels overwhelming to dive into. However, redistricting and the results of it have real-world consequences on our families, on our communities. Those who try to manipulate it thrive when the average person feels like redistricting is not an issue that concerns them or affects them. Following the 1992 riots that were ignited by the Rodney King beatings in Los Angeles, Koreatown was struggling to recuperate, and having suffered an estimated $1 billion in damages, they looked towards their elected officials for help with cleanup and recovery. When residents tried calling, they were turned away and told that they were in a different jurisdiction time and time again. It turns out that during the 1990 redistricting cycle, the community of Koreatown, which is barely over a square mile, was split into four city council districts and five state assembly districts. Unfortunately, this would not be the last time a neighborhood in Los Angeles would have to suffer the consequences of gerrymandering. On November 12, 2003, a freak storm dumped over five inches of hail and rain upon the neighborhood of Watts. The community, which was mainly comprised of, of Black and Latino folks, suffered heavily, with 150 buildings having some sort of damage and over 50,000 losing power, heat, and electricity. Immediately, community leaders sprung into action, reaching out to their local officials in hopes of addressing the immediate and long-term problems that would arise from such a catastrophe. Unfortunately, during the 2000 redistricting cycle, the community of Watts was split into three congressional districts and three Senate districts. In an interview with the LA Times, a former congressional staffer, Romulo Rivera, stated, 
Residents were unsure who was actually their member of Congress. Residents who lived on the same street may live in different districts. There was a lot of unnecessary frustration for constituents during a difficult time. This would have never happened if all of Watts belonged to one district. Now, thankfully for the city of Watts, the community was able to band together during the 2010 cycle and unite themselves. Hearing these stories can make redistricting seem like a bad process whose intention is to disempower our communities, but that would be wrong. Redistricting is not inherently good or bad. It is a tool. Unfortunately, some bad actors have utilized these tools to disempower us. But the flip side of that is that good actors like you and me can use redistricting as a tool to empower our communities, and we can use it as leverage to gain representation. Thankfully, many organizers, attorneys, and community advocates saw the positive potential redistricting had and decided to pursue reforms that would change redistricting for the better. Over the years, community leaders have come together to demand redistricting reforms and fair maps throughout California. Until this point, politicians and special interests manipulated maps to benefit themselves, whether it was to protect an incumbent or give their party a political advantage. And legislation like the Voting Rights Act of 1965 helped ensure that a state's actions wouldn't interfere with voting rights. Section 2 of the Act explicitly forbids states from practices and procedures within redistricting plans that would discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in a language minority group. Despite efforts like this, it was not enough to prevent gerrymandering and other practices to taint the redistricting process. Thus, we see calls for redistricting form intensify. One of the reforms community leaders hoped to usher in were independent redistricting commissions. To get a better sense of what the fight for redistricting reform looked like in California, the Democracy is podcast is proud to introduce our very first guest, Kathy Fung. Kathy is Common Cause's national redistricting director, and she has spent her career fighting against partisan and incumbent gerrymandering. She was also one of the forefront leaders on the mission to create independent redistricting commissions here in California. We're so honored to have her on the podcast. Hi, Kathy, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Alex. Uh, this is Kathy Fung, and I am the National Director of Redistricting and Representation. And the work that I do at Common Cause is to make sure that the redistricting process, as much as we can, is open, transparent, and inclusive of all people's voices, not just the will of people who are already in power to reinforce their own power. Thank you so much, Kathy. Can you describe what the redistricting landscape looked like in California prior to the establishment of independent redistricting commissions? Oh, boy. Right. So back in 1999, 2000, I got involved in the redistricting process in California. And back then, you know, I was a very young attorney thinking that if only we could organize people to participate in the redistricting process, uh, which meant thinking about where their communities were and then going to an official hearing that was being held by either the Assembly or the Senate, uh, that we could tell our stories and be heard and try to make a difference in terms of how the lines are going to be drawn in a way where a community wouldn't have a line drawn through them. Um, and, you know, where we could, we could try to 
ensure that those communities had an ability to truly elect candidates of their choice. Um, and what we found was that there were four months of hearings to mostly empty rooms. Um, you'd have a, a big old auditorium, a um, couple of legislators sitting on the stage, a uh, couple people in the audience, literally a couple of people in the audience sometimes. And we would, you know, talk about communities. Sometimes we'd bring community members, um, but it was a, largely to an empty room. They might have had half a dozen hearings at most. Um, and then what we realized was, my big realization was after the four months of hearings, uh, the legislators went behind closed doors and it was two weeks of radio silence. We didn't know what was going on. Um, during that time, it was right after Labor Day, I remember I got a phone call from a legislator um, and I was very excited because I thought, oh, this means that maybe they heard our testimony and they're wanting to kind of ask about details like, did you mean this street or that street? Um, but instead what it was, was a legislator who called me and said, Kathy, you are not going to put another Asian in my district. And at the time I was working with a civil rights group that was representing Asian Americans this legislator came from the San Francisco area where every third person is an Asian. And so the kind of arrogance and racism that was being expressed justified by that sense of privilege that, you know, this incumbent owns the district, right, uh, was really shocking to me. It was shocking that in 2001 you would have that total sense of political power, you know, where, um, we, we meant nothing. Um, and I think it was reinforced after the lines did come out the day after the September 11th attacks, actually the legislature pushed through the lines, um, while everybody else was reeling from the shock of the terrorist attacks. And, you know, we were on a, you know, the media was 100% focused on that. The legislature pushed this through. Uh, and we realized that in a lot of places, Asian Americans, you know, Latinos, African Americans, just cities, communities, if you weren't at the table, you were going to see lines that were drawn in ways that would hurt your community and your power. Um, and it really reinforced that there was a secret handshake deal between incumbents to solidify their control of the legislature. What are independent redistricting commissions? How did they change redistricting at the state level? And what did they do for communities of color? So independent commissions um, are things that they're, no, let me back up. Um, when we think about independent commissions, we generally think about a group of people uh, who take on the role of drawing the district lines um, that are not directly connected to the people who are ultimately going to run for those offices. So the word independent means that that group of commissioners, they don't have ties to the legislature. Maybe they were not directly chosen by legislative members. 
they certainly shouldn't be the staff of or or even, you know, the legislators themselves. Um, what I'll say is that the level of independence depends um, on what state you're in. And there are a fairly large number of states where early on the idea of independent commissions was you had a group of people who uh, were not legislators themselves, but they might be chosen by legislators, right? Um, and they and they they didn't necessarily have super strict list of conflicts of interest. Um, by the time California was considering whether or not to adopt a commission, we spent a lot of time deliberating about you know how strict we were going to be. And um, what I'll say is that over time we realized that you had to account for human nature. And it's in human nature for people who have power to want to continue consolidating power. And so we moved increasingly towards something that um, had no direct ties to the legislature. Um, and so when California put something on the ballot in 2008, we actually had one of the most independent um, proposals that there were out there. Our, our applicants would come through a pool where um, an independent body, in our case, the Bureau of State Auditors, um, would screen them. Uh, they would be chosen based on an ability to be impartial. Uh, the legislature didn't get to choose, but they did get to knock people out, you know, sort of like a jury voir dire. Um, and then the final people who were chosen, the 14, um, would not have a direct hand in kind of the legislator, legislature being able to choose them. Um, but they did have sort of a pretty extensive screening process to make sure they didn't have direct ties to the legislature. They weren't staff. They weren't campaigners. They weren't big donors. Um, that they were really independent of the people who ultimately they would be drawing lines where those people might run in. Fast forward 10 years, another huge redistricting reform was introduced, the Fair Maps Act. What is it and how did the Fair Maps Act of 2019 impact what the redistricting landscape would look like leading into the 2020 cycle? In California, what happened was after California adopted the major redistricting reforms at the state level. And we essentially had a test run, right? Um, what we saw was that something like 20,000 people put their name in the hat. Um, there was really robust public participation, you know, lots of testimony at the local level telling this new commission in 2011 uh, what people wanted to see. Um, and because it was such a robust process throughout the the, the state, you know, they, the, that state commission had over 100 meetings and hearings around the state, I think it created a real hunger um, in California. Why don't we do this at the county level? Why don't we do this at the city level? Why don't we do this, you know, for our school boards? And so I think at the at the outset, People were feeling a little bit nervous, nervous about whether or not this commission, this super independent commission would work. After they'd gone through it, they said, this works. And, you know, it would really help to make sure that our government is responsive and, you know, looks like the changing demographics of California. So a lot of advocates at the local level said, well, why don't we do this for cities? 
Um, so the Fair Maps Act in California um, created basically a structure for cities and counties to be able to adopt um, a truly independent, robust, inclusive uh, process uh, for those local, local communities to, to be able to have a redistricting process. And I think the exciting thing was that a lot of the pieces came from the, the run that was, you know, came out of uh, the state. Um, and you also had a lot of, you had a whole new generation of people who were interested in redistricting and were ready to take it up. Uh, and so what we also saw was that at the city level and county level, a lot of local jurisdictions had city clerks, um, county registrars, you know, people who worked for those levels of government who also wanted to have a transparent, robustly inclusive process. And so all of that kind of came together um, to create basically a statewide standard um, for local governments to to be able to run their redistricting processes. Looking at California specifically, how have you seen attitudes towards redistricting change in communities, especially in communities of color? Oh, that is a really good question. I think first and foremost, what I want to do is to say that here and today in 2022, there's a few things that we need to invest in if we want 2032 to be even better. One is that there's a lot of people who came forward to participate, um, but I would say that in a lot of ways, there is a level of investment in people who can work with local governments, um, who can serve as their mappers or uh, as their public outreach team or as communication specialists to make sure that what we're hoping to be a truly open and transparent process has uh, the staff and expertise to be able to make it so, right? Um, I, I know that in some cities and counties, the stumbling block wasn't the availability of people who were interested in being independent commissioners and the stumbling block wasn't necessarily interest from the community. The stumbling block was that you didn't have um, people at that city or county level who could serve as mappers or who could provide legal advice or who could help to do the outreach that was necessary. Second piece is that I would hope that um, we really conscientiously build an infrastructure in the nonprofit universe to um, dedicate the resources and the people to outreach to communities that are not at the table. And every 10 years, that's going to look a little bit different. And being intentional about raising the money and um, training up staff to, to really reach into communities that haven't been um, heard uh, is really important. I think that we're seeing that changing landscape every decade. We get a better sense of kind of what the diversity means in California. Um, but that means making sure that there are materials that are translated uh, that we're thinking about communities of, that have been marginalized or historically marginalized, um, that we're, we're building up a cadre of trainers and educators and activists um, who know those communities as their own and who then are willing to be essentially the ambassadors or the, the liaisons to those communities to make sure that they understand the redistricting process and that they feel comfortable participating, telling the stories of where they're located and why it's important to be respected. 
We'd like to thank Kathy Fung once again for joining us and giving us such vital insight on what the fight for redistricting reform looked like in California. Now that we have a deep understanding of the history of its establishment, the politics of the gerrymander, and the current state of our system, we can recognize how we got here and what we may see in future decades. Thank you for listening to the Democracy is Podcast presented by California Common Cause. We hope you enjoyed our show and that you will join us in two weeks for Redistricting Part 2, where we will get the inside scoop on what transpired during the 2020 redistricting cycle. Research, writing, and editing was done by our team, which includes Maya Chupkov, Jose del Rio III, Pedro Hernandez, Kaylin Parache, Kate Inn, and myself, Alexandra Leal. We'd also like to thank former interns Skylar Payab and Ariana Brubalcaba for their work on this first episode. If you'd like to learn more about the work California Common Cause does, how to get involved, or if you'd like to donate to our work or this podcast, please visit www.commoncause.org forward slash California. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.